Have you entered our giveaway with Looking Glass Gems? It is closing soon, so hop to it to our Instagram, at the Pacey Tapes, and enter now. Looking Glass Gems, beautiful, affordable crystal rhinestones. Shop lookingglassgems.com or live and in person at BurleyCon. This episode was brought to you with the support from listeners like you. Special thanks to superfan BFF-level supporters Kyle H., the man with the hat, and Violet Passion. To support the Pacey Tapes, to keep this podcast rolling, join the Pacey Tapes fan club, and you can do that now by visiting thepaceytapes.com. If you join the fan club, I will write you a love note, I will shout you out on air, I'll send you a handful of merch, and I will be forever, ever, ever grateful. So special super thanks to Kyle H. and Violet Passion. Oh, hello! This is Blanche Debris, and you're listening to the Pasty Tapes. A burlesque podcast by Show My More, the steamiest Asian dumpling. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Pacey Tapes. I am your host, Show My More, the steamiest Asian dumpling, recording live from under a blanket in my living room in Chicago. This past week, I was in Nashville. It was my third time in Nashville in six weeks. This time around, I was there for a wedding. My muggle BFF got married. And I was the maid of honor, and it was so beautiful, and I really love love. Also, wild, it was my first wedding as a grown-up, like the first wedding that I've been able to attend where I was invited. It was my name plus guest, not like my mom plus children or family or whatever. And so that was really rad. I think I was a successful maid of honor. Overall, solid weekend. Very glad to be home for these next couple of weeks. While I was in Nashville, which is my burlesque hometown, I, of course, got to spend time with the love of my life, Chandeliers. I was also able to hang out with Gidget Bardot, who you heard from a few weeks ago in her very own episode. All right, let's jump into today's episode. I first saw this performer in 2018 at Jeezy's Juke Joint. Shan introduced us. They have been around much longer than that. There's someone who I think is such an incredible storyteller. They definitely bring sparkle to the stage in more ways than one. This is my conversation with Nona Narcisse. Nona Narcisse, thank you so much for being on The Pasty Tapes. I am ecstatic to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh, of course. All right, let's dig in. Nona, tell me, what is your burlesque origin story? Well, um, I started doing burlesque in New Orleans, Louisiana in 2007. I had um, dropped out of fashion design school, gone back to my hometown to study massage therapy and polarity therapy, and moved to New Orleans at 21 to become a Pilates instructor originally. I, um, I moved into my aunt and uncle's home and began to work retail, wait tables, 10 bar, and work in a spa doing massage. Burlesque dancers began to find me everywhere. Oh. Everywhere. Like it was their job. One of my Pilates instructors was one of the most prominent performers in the city. I waited tables with another and worked in the retail shop with a third burlesque performer. And mind you, this is at a time when there were maybe like 10 or 15 burlesque dancers in the entire region. New Orleans is this incredible, peculiar crossroads for many. You find what you need in New Orleans if it doesn't find you first. Not what you want, but what you need. (laughs) And uh, when it's time to go, or if you are not listening, she will also repel your ass out of her grip so fast you will not know what hit you. Whoa. Um, It's a very magnetic place. 
But uh, I, start, I started attending their shows and became obsessed with burlesque. I, uh, I researched burlesque history, and I eventually found my way to a stage. And uh, that was a wrap for me once I hit the stage. Um, burlesque perfectly synthesizes my love of movement, color, fashion, music, and storytelling in a way that I find very gratifying and empowering. Um, each routine is like a well-rounded art piece where you are the curator of every aspect. Being sort of um, orchestrating how people experience my art, my choreography, how I give permission to view my body is pretty unique to burlesque as an art form. And I just really ate that up. When I first started performing, I think I was drawn to Honestly, I was drawn to the nudity and the subversive rebellion that burlesque offered. Yeah. Uh, it just looked like so much fun. I found that my spiritual practices have become fused with my performance. And actually, performance has become an integral part of my spiritual practice. Tell me more about that. You know, I, I feel that a lot of that burlesque utilizes a lot of my other talents I kind of, I held the false assumption that I had wasted time in my previous efforts, uh, dance, fashion, or body work mainly, and looked down on myself for not quite finding my footing in any one place. But now I realized that I needed all of the knowledge I had gained in my initial pursuits, and I use it all in my current work, and my performances are effective largely because of what I considered fits and starts of my youth. I'm really utilizing energy work a lot on stage. And that's become part and parcel to um, my ancestor worship and sort of some of the like larger soul work that I feel like I'm here to do. That's incredible. That's pretty woo woo. but. <laughs> so you moved to New Orleans at 21. Um, yeah. Burlesque was in your orbit, right? Basically, since you got there. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think, you know, when you say like, you know, New Orleans gives you what you need, do you think burlesque is what you needed? Oh, holy, completely. It it really was. Um, and, and it still is sort of like this constant um, journey of you learning to value myself where I am in, in the present moment. So I find that it's like this really nice practice of continuing to check in with myself spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally, continue to like realign with with where I need to be. Yeah, that's beautiful. Let's talk about these fits and starts that you mentioned. I know that you are a trained dancer. Uh, you mentioned going to fashion school, doing this body work. Tell me more about your dance background. Like, how did you get started in dance? Did that dance background, you know, even though you said, like, you looked down on yourself, like, did that help you transition into burlesque, like, a little easier? Tell me more about those things. Yeah, totally. I, I feel like it really did. I started doing ballet as a four-year-old and uh, did it until I was about 14. So that was my introduction into dance. I had a very old school headmistress at the tiny little ballet school that I attended. She, um, she grew up in the Russian ballet and she, this lady was incredible. She would still do pirouettes on point with us. And she was in her fucking eighties, man. Holy shit. She was so intense. But I, I, I remember the day I quit, uh, she was frustrated with me because I could not nail a move. And she looked at me and she said to me, from the waist up, you are a perfect ballerina. 
but from the waist down, you will never be a ballerina. Wow. And that was just like, I mean, at that point I was like, well, fuck ballet forever. <laughs> yeah. Um, that sounds so hurtful. So hurtful. So hurtful. And, a, you know, a 14, that's the last thing that a 14 year old girl needs to hear is that, you know, her body is wrong. Right. Um, you know, and, you know, those thick thighs and booty may not have been the picture of a ballerina. From there, I they really helped me excel in equestrian competitions. I rode horses. My stepfather helped me um, break and train my own horse so that I could compete with the rich kids in three-day eventing. Wow. And um, I did that, that for several years and did some pretty hardcore competing as a teenager. I took African dance and modern dance in college and found belly dance uh, to kind of be like a, before I found burlesque, it was a really nice outlet for all the sensuality that I was kind of brimming with uh, when I first moved to New Orleans. Um, but when I found burlesque, I found that it like, my, my movement background melded quite easily. I do think that my transition was a bit smoother because I kind of just saw it at the beginning as another dance modality to learn, right. not knowing that like it was so much more. But I, I also, I, like I said, I, I approach burlesque from a really like woo-woo, uh, as it were, spiritual standpoint. I strongly believe that we are a priest class of humanity that, um, that we offer a mirror into the soul of human sexuality, politics, pains, pleasures, and desires. We offer release and exploration into the matters of our hearts, minds, and groins. Tell me more about like what you've learned about yourself in making that shift from thinking of it as a dance modality to something that's spiritual. I guess one of the main things that I have I'm still uh, learning is that my story is valid and that um, my experience and me sharing my story gives other people permission to do the same and to stand it me like me standing in my own truth gives permission for others to stand in their truth. And I think that like that has been kind of like the huge epiphany for me and that like Dance is not dance and art is not art. It's this other much bigger thing that's like beyond us almost. Tell me more about that. What has your experience been like in the burlesque scene as someone, you know, living their truth? Um, you know, it, it's interesting. I think that uh, especially for me, I think learning to trust and stand in my truth is going to be kind of a lifelong process. I'm sort of like a two, you know, one step forward, two steps back type of learner. Um, but I, I think that, you know, in terms of like my experience as a person of color in burlesque, my proximity to whiteness is rather close and I benefit from a lot of privilege. Um, I consider it one of my karmic duties kind of to not kind of, I, I consider it one of my karmic duties to uplift and amplify uh, the voices of those whose proximity is not so close as mine, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I kind of feel like we are in the middle of like, of, of a, like a new human reckoning. We've defined ourselves with the wrong terms and are fighting about it based off thinking in like the wrong paradigm completely. Um, it's like we're quantum beings fighting with two dimensional weaponry. Wow. Um, okay. 
like I, I am simultaneously a black woman, a Sri Lankan woman, an indigenous woman, and a white woman all at once, <laughs> all at the same time, you know? And, and I think until we learn that we can be multiple things at the same time, we'll not be able to move past the struggle that humanity seems to have been grappling with through the ages. And I, you know, I firmly believe that the burlesque world is just a microcosm of the larger world that we live in. And so we face all the same kind of like issues and problems that the larger world does, right? Okay, jumping in with a quick edit here. Nona wanted me to chime in and clarify that she means not just racially can we be more than one thing at one time, but that we as humans are capable of processing and expressing a myriad of complex emotions, identities, and concepts. Thanks, Nona. All right, back to the interview. But, you know, locally and on a small scale, I think I've tried to do work to to bridge gaps and expand understanding, you know, those efforts haven't always come to fruition either. For instance, I, like I created a, a small coalition here in Baltimore to address the inequity that was occurring in the DC, Baltimore and Virginia scenes. We, we weren't really able to arrive at solutions that pleased all, you know, and some felt the damage done by white folks intended or not was too deep to repair which is fair. And that work kind of came to an impasse. We're going to donate the money we raise to a worthy local cause that benefits performers of color or merely divide the funds amongst the performers of color in the region. And actually, I still have some fuck racism and burlesque pins. If anyone would like to buy one, holler at me. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, we'll be fully transparent about where the money is going once we've found its worthy home. But, you know, I guess I just, I try to... I just try to do what I feel is right, I guess, and just try and, and be and give permission to others to be how they how they want to be and, and who they want. And I guess that's kind of uh, that's, I guess that's how I, that's, I, I feel that's all I can do. You know, I kind of I constantly get in this this anxiety position of like, oh, what can we do to fix this? You know, like we've got to fix these problems. And um I think that a lot of times all we can do is just, you know, do right by ourselves and do right by the people that are in our immediate circles. Doing right by yourself is so important, right? Just And internally. sometimes it's so hard. So hard, right? Sometimes that's the hardest work, for Indeed. sure. Okay, so you've been doing burlesque for over a decade now. Can you tell me more about how the scene and the art has changed over time from your perspective? Yeah, sure. You know, so I guess this would be my 12th year in the burlesque scene. 12 years. Congratulations. Crazy. It's so wild. It both feels like not like a really short time and a really long time, like all, all at once. I don't know. I guess I'm really happy to see that equity and inclusion are coming to the forefront of the work that a lot of producers and showrunners are doing. I'm so glad that we're starting to kind of like build some infrastructure as a community with our added flair, of course, that, you know, that established industries have benefited greatly from for decades. And I'm really excited for more growth and change in those arenas you know, support for artists and, and um, things of that nature. I started doing burlesque kind of right at the beginning of when social media was becoming a huge facet of our lives, uh, which was a really, it's been very interesting to watch that and participate in that. I'm, I'm glad that I got to experience a snippet of life before the age of the internet. And I'm also grateful for how connected it's enabled us to become. 
it's like we all know so much more about each other than we did when I started performing. Oh my God, which of I course, think, yes. Yeah, which I think is generally awesome. But conversely, I do also think that we as artists can suffer from paying a bit too much attention to what others are doing and letting that adversely affect our own work. There like arbitrary rules about what is or is not an art form can kind of start to stunt creativity and and it can also lead to homogenization of said art form where things can start to look the same. They start to look a little same samey. So I I try to be inspired and know what's happening while maintaining my own voice and equilibrium. And I think I've kind of watched the scene do a little bit of that where um Things got a little bit same-samey there, and they're starting to kind of get a little bit more creative again. For me, maintaining my own voice and equilibrium means that I'm not on social media that much anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm totally that unfortunate brand of artist who does not like to promote themselves at all. Um, I was like, please look at my work and hire me if you like it, but I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> I'm horrible at selling myself. I think that um, that's not unusual. So you're, yeah. you're okay. Totally. You're I mean, valid. and I, I was taught too that, you know, the proof is in the pudding and that your work should speak loudly for itself. You should be humble and, and not self aggrandize. And, um, I know burlesque should be filled with fun ballyhoo, but that can be a little bit of a hard balance to strike. Oh yeah. I totally grew up in the kind of household where, you know, my mom never talked about, you know, any of her children's accomplishments because her philosophy was like, well, if you're really good, other people will talk about you. But, yeah. you know, when your mom is the teacher at the school that you're at or whatever, like no one's going to talk about you. Right. Like that's totally. that would be fucking weird. Um, right. But yeah, yeah. That's like something that I've had to learn how to deal with like most of my life and like learn how to overcome that in the realm of burlesque where you know people will be like and I'm sure like you get this right like oh my god like your business is so successful or like for me it's like oh my god you're like everywhere like wow like how great and then you're just kind of like eh like I guess like I don't know but that's a lot of self-work I need to work on but yeah I totally I don't I don't think that that's unusual like not wanting to you know, throw yourself too much out there. Look at me, look at me, you know, it's, it's right. Fine. Well, and I mean, you'll starve if you're too humble, right? Right, right. There's that. Yeah. Yeah. Open mouth, <laughs> like you have fed, to, right? You got to do a little bit of it if you want to gig at all. So like, th- I feel like that's been actually my main um, struggle as a burlesque performer is that like, I just nobody knows about me because I don't, I don't, I don't get out there. And I think a lot of it is that like my priorities have shifted a bit. And, and I think one thing that Looking Glass Gems has taught me is like how to be realistic and what I'm able to offer as an individual and as a performer, and also what I need to feel fulfilled, and also just straight up what I need to be paid. Like, I, I would take gigs even two or three years ago that I would not take now, you know, just yeah. because um, it's not worth it for me in, in several different ways. So, um, yeah, I think a lot of it is just shifting priorities, too. How do you feel about people in the burlesque community knowing Looking Glass Gems, but maybe not knowing that you, you know, a real-ass artist and fellow performer, is the one behind the business, <laughs> behind the sparkle, right? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think that um, it's been so much easier for me to promote the business in a strange way than it has been for me to promote myself, because there isn't this, like, intense personal connection with the material, 
Like, I love sparkles, and I'm really proud of our, our product, of course, but it's not this, like, you know, deep, dark part of my soul that I'm bearing. <laughs> right. So I think that it's been a lot easier to promote in that respect that it's like it's just a really fun, sparkly product that people need. So that's easy to to fulfill that need. Um, but of course, I think that all of our egos want to be recognized by our peers and recognized by by our community for the art that we bring to the table. And I, I do hope that that more people are able to see my art and appreciate what, what I bring to burlesque. What's the balance between being an artist, being a patron of the arts, right, supporting burlesque, and then being an arts-focused businesswoman with Looking Glass Gems. Like, how how does that all come together? Ah, good question. I mean, it's so interesting because I um, the business happened pretty or- in an organic fashion. You know, myself and my colleagues were unable to find a high-quality and affordable rhinestone on the market. I couldn't afford to hemorrhage money buying Swarovskis or continue praying that my glass stones would arrive from halfway across the world. Right. Um, So originally, I thought that I would just provide for myself and my performance family. But um, the more it snowballed, the more people I realized truly needed our product. And I think that the several years that I had spent building Upper Less Network really helped get the word out there. You know, we had something that people needed. And that was a really beautiful thing to watch blossom and and to know that um, people had my back. It was really quite beautiful. How has this business influenced how you burlesque? Or how has, like, your way of burlesquing influenced how you do business? Hmm. Well, I don't run out of rhinestones on projects as much. Right? That sounds like a problem you will never have or will be able to solve very, very quickly. And I'm much sparklier on stage. Absolutely. The business has required more time than I'm even able to give it. So I I haven't been able to focus on performing as much as I'd like to, which I'm actually a little bit heartsick about. But I guess I'm just kind of trying to trust in the process that that more time will be freed up in the future to uh, to do what I love. But I think that it's it's. It's affected it adversely kind of in that respect in that, like, I just don't have as much time. I had kind of like all of these grand delusions of free time and financial stability. <laughs> oh, my God. I, yeah. Which were such grand delusions. It, this is such a sort of grassroots effort. I mean, it, it, literally like a credit card and a dream, baby. A credit card and a dream. Like, You're that's how it. this all started. And, you know, it's still a constant struggle to make ends meet. And both my partner are working with a gargantuan learning curve on the business side of things. Uh, You know, we're both artists with zero business acumen. You know what? Actually, I totally take that back. We have a shit ton of business acumen. Yeah. You know, sometimes, sometimes I forget that we built this completely grassroots from nothing but our sheer drive and determination and all of the wonderful support network that we've cultivated over the years. And that we're willing to learn the skills necessary to succeed. And, you know, that's something to be proud of, I think. Right, right. And then, like, think about, right, like, you talk about fits and starts with your artistic career. Like, business has always been a through line in, like, everything that anyone does. So don't discount that for sure. Totally. And, you know, burlesque is the only thing that's ever stuck for me. You know, I kind of, I, I never found my place until I found burlesque. And that's really when my life opened up and things really started aligning. Why do you think it's the only thing that stuck? 
I think it has to do with that, like, perfect synthesization of, like, all of those artistic elements that I kind of, like, I dabbled in all of these things that just didn't quite fit right. And burlesque utilizes all of those things in a way that just fit really well for me. And, and kind of it scratches a lot of my different itches yeah. and keeps me interested and excited and angry and passionate and <laughs> all of those things that keep me coming back for more. I think you can feel a very, very, very wide range of emotions just watching burlesque and then being a part of it and then really, really being a part of it. Yeah. No doubt. That's totally no doubt. Valid. Sometimes it's like hella easy to get caught up in that glitz and glam of burlesque, right? You're someone who is very intimately aware and related to the glitz and glam of burlesque. Uh, bringing it back to Shan, one of Shan's favorite phrases is rehearsals before rhinestones. Mm-hmm. What advice do you have for performers, uh, what advice do you want to give performers who, you know, maybe get caught up in the rhinestone part of things, right? Like, how how do we get performers to be okay that, like, you know, their insides and their energy, like, need to sparkle as much as their costumes, or maybe more than their costumes, right? What yeah, totally. I mean, I think that's, like, another interesting balance to strike, because, like, when I was talking about the sort of same-samey things that started happening, I think that a lot of that was a around appearance and how burlesque looks and how sparkly it should be and and you know you need to wear shoes and you need to do this and you need to do that and I really think that one of the beautiful things about burlesque is that it's whatever the fuck you want it to be and as long as you're not hurting anybody it can be completely non-sparkly and gory or bloody or sad or angry it can be all of those things and I think one of the greatest compliments I receive on the regular is how lovely people say that I express this pure joy on stage and how lovely that is to witness. It took me a few years to realize what was happening there and that, you know, I was giving permission to feel that joy that we so rarely get to feel sort of like pure, unadulterated joy. And a lot of my routines are kind of surrounded around joy of the dance. But one of my favorite quotes, actually, that I rely on almost every time I go on stage, because I still get very nervous every time before I perform, is a quote by a clown. He's a master clown. His name is Avner Eisenberg. And I'm not going to quote verbatim, unfortunately, because I can't remember it. I wish I could. But um He says that performers often worry themselves with being interesting, being interesting on stage and engaging to watch. And we don't need to worry about that. All we need to worry about on stage is being interested. And the moment that you're interested, you magically become interesting. And so I guess... My main advice to performers that are worried about, you know, reaching a certain level of glitz or glam is that all you have to do is be interested in what you're doing. And it's going to be engaging to watch and people are going to find something to identify with it and something to connect to it with if you're authentically expressing. Whoa. interested I don't know if that not interesting no I think I think I mean it does it does for me that makes sense (gasps) it was a big epiphany for me that like holy shit 
I don't even have to worry about all of this nonsense that I'm doing. As long as I'm interested on stage, as long as I'm interested in what I'm doing, people are automatically interested. And it's really shifted everything for me. It really did. Yeah. And every time I'm like feeling nervous or feeling like I'm not worthy, I just go back to that. It's like, just fucking be you. Right. And be interested. And that's all you need. Nona, I think that's a great stopping place. Thank you so much for being on the Pacey Tapes. I had a really great time. Thanks for having me, Shomai. Uh, of course. Where can people find you on the internet? Where can people find what you're up to? Tell us about you. Yeah, so, um, you know, I do update my social media with upcoming performances, and you can find me by searching my name. Um, and, you know, I'm going down to New Orleans in September to do the Crescent City Burlesque Weekender. And uh, my partner and I are actually moving away from Baltimore at the beginning of 2020. We are going to be spending some some time in my hometown with my family while we get ourselves together to move to Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, Yeah. Wait, okay, wait, let's not wrap up yet. Okay, like, what do you, why Las Vegas? What are you going to be doing out there? Las Vegas just makes way too much sense for Looking Glass Gems for us not to be based in Las Vegas. Yeah. So, um, you know, we are relocating to the land of Sparkle for the Sparkle business. Incredible. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Continue Continue with where people can find us. Absolutely. Um, so I no longer have a performance website. It was something that didn't make sense for me to upkeep. But you can find me on social media. Search for my name, which you can find in the show notes, I'm sure. Um, yep. And... Looking Glass Gems is uh, also on social media, and all of our products are available for sale on our website. You can find us through searching and all of those methods. Um, Yeah, I think that's it. Thank you so much, Nona. I will see you soon. Yay, thank you. Thanks again, Nona. You can catch Nona and Looking Glass Gems at BurleyCon this November. They'll be vending. Please stop by and say hello. Check out their beautiful sparkly table. Nona is such a delight, and so are their rhinestones. After this interview was recorded, Nona went down to New Orleans for the Crescent City Burlesque Weekender, where Nona was then crowned the reigning unicorn. She's the 2019 reigning unicorn of the Crescent City Burlesque Weekender. Congrats. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Pasty Tapes. Special thanks to superfan BFF level supporters Kyle H., the man with a hat, and Violet Passion. I also want to give a shout out to our friend level supporters Kits and Sass, Tony Tabasco, Rosalie Bloom, and Fufu Kaboom. If you want to support the Pacey Tapes, visit thepaceytapes.com and join the fan club now. You can leave a message or send a text to the Pacey Tapes hotline, and that's 1-530-PASTIES, or you can send an email to thepaceytapes at gmail.com. You can follow the Pasty Tapes across the internet at the Pasty Tapes on Instagram and Twitter and other places, I'm sure. I am your host, Show My More, the steamiest Asian dumpling, and you can find me at Show My More across the internet. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Pasty Tapes, and I will talk with you soon. You have been listening to the Pasty Tapes. A burlesque podcast by Show My More, the steamiest Asian dumpling. This is Blanche Debris saying thanks for listening and see you later, ducklings.
You can catch me performing across the Midwest this winter, but you can especially find me at BurleyCon. I will be teaching my workshop, Cooler on the Internet, and I'll even be leading a Burley lab called Social Media in Your Sleep. If you want to learn how to have some internet fun with me, find me at BurleyCon. If you're not going to be there, feel free to send me a love note, and let's talk about other ways that you can learn. Some other cool things coming out. I have a new one-inch enamel pin designed by Blue's Chicken that should be here soon, available for pre-order. If you want to have a fat babe body pinned on you, if you want to have my fat babe body pinned on you, check out my Instagram. You can see the illustration and let me know if this is something you want to pre-order. Happy to hand it over to you at BurleyCon or mail you something with a love note. Okay, until next week. Talk to you later.